0: want to welcome everybody here, everybody watching online as well. So you might expect to come to church and hear a message on love, but it might surprise you a bit when you find out that it's in the context of a series on idols and idolatry. You know, it's pretty counterintuitive to think that love could be considered an idol, but it can be. You see, an idol is anything, anything, people, that takes the place where only God should be in your life anything in which your identity or happiness rests. You know, an idol is something that can have kind of an obsessive quality to it, and you consider yourself hopeless without it. Now, the Bible says anytime something becomes so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living, that has become an idol. Now, the fact that this book right here, the Bible, talks in such glowing terms about the word love means that love may be the sneakiest idol of all. And here's why. It's because our hearts can take really, really good things and make them ultimate things. Let me say that again. Our hearts can take something that's really, really good and put it in a place that's way, way too high. In fact, I would say that our world today has exaggerated this natural human longing for love to an astonishing degree. And I think most of us, we don't have to look back any further than say we were a teenager, maybe 16 years old, and in a completely made-up example, perhaps dating a young blonde-haired girl who flashed a beautiful smile as we cruised down I-45 on our way to the beach in Galveston. I don't know, maybe, okay. A girl who, when we first broke up, I found myself surreptitiously driving past her house over and over again just to see if she was there. And I think you learn at a very young age that love has the potential to become obsessive in nature. It has the potential to become an idol. And we get fooled when we think love is only noble because in reality, love has this potential to become an idol and put a barrier between us and God. And the truth is, the Bible speaks of the inevitability of idols in our lives. Let me say that again it speaks of the inevitability of idols in our lives. And knocking down idols, I don't think it's so much a one-time event in our life. It's more like bowling, you know, we you throw the ball down the alley, you knock the pins down, and you feel really good, and then that darn reset arm keeps coming down, and I'm setting them back up again, right? It's like, man. But I believe that spiritual maturity means over time, we can increase our ability to recognize idols for what they are, and we can increase our ability to surrender them. Now, the surrendering will almost always involve pain and suffering. But people who have never really suffered in life are to some degree handicapped. You know, they oftentimes have less empathy for other people, little understanding of their own shortcomings and limitations, no endurance in the face of hardships, and unrealistic expectations. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to run through four potential idols, four forms of love that can become idols in our lives. And my hope is that at least one of them will annoy you and stick with you this week, right? maybe make you a little miserable, so you might consider the possibility that you've elevated it to the place of an idol. All right, let's walk through these. The first form of love gone wrong in our day is romance and sex. Romance and sex. Our culture places such mythic promises of fulfillment on love. It's unbelievable. For crying out loud, you turn on the TV and shampoo holds out those promises, right? <laughs> Seriously, but, but love, man, it gets elevated to this ultimate thing. And we get the message over and over and over again that our lives are simply empty and meaningless without it, that real life begins when you find that special someone. And, you know, the result of that can be that single people feel marginalized. In fact, the expectations are sky high for young women to get married once they enter into their 20s, especially their 30s. Uh, Anytime she puts on a bridesmaid dress, somebody's going to inevitably toss out that question. So when are you getting married? When are you getting married? Unless you think it's just our culture today, let me remind you that crooners from Frank Sinatra to Diddy and beyond have sung of the just virtues of romantic love. So, real quick, in an attempt to cover most of the musical bases, pulled some lyrics here. Maroon 5 sings, I treated you bad, baby. I strung you along. I don't know how I got so tangled up. All right, for those of you who are more of the country western persuasion, how about a little Kenny Rogers here? all I ever need is you. Give me a reason to build my world around you. Okay, for those of you in the Mariah Carey fan club, she sings, if you only live for me the way I live for you, because all I've ever wanted is you. Then who could forget the immortal words of Elvis, right? I have everything as long as I have you. But we get that message over and over and over again. And interestingly enough, the Bible records a number of times when great characters in this book right here got neck deep in this quicksand of romantic love. And we have a phrase for someone who's fallen in love. You've heard this before probably. He worships the ground he walks on. How tragic it is when that becomes literally the case. Ernest Becker, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death, explains the various ways that secular people have dealt with a loss of belief in God. This is a fascinating quote here. I'm going to read it in its entirety. He says, now that we think we're here by accident and not made for any purpose, how do we instill a sense of significance in our lives? One of the main ways is what I call apocalyptic romance, We look to sex and romance to give us the transcendence and sense of meaning we used to get from faith in God. The modern secular person still needed to feel heroic to know that his life mattered in the grand scheme of things. He still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and gratitude. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become centered in one individual. In a word, the love object becomes God. Man reached for a thou when the worldview of the great religious community overseen by God died. He says this, the failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, no human partner can get this. But yet, that's exactly what millions and millions and millions of people around our world are doing. And the popular music, the art in our society calls us to keep on doing it, to load all the deepest needs of our hearts for, for satisfaction, for significance, for transcendence into romance and love. You're nobody till somebody loves you, says the popular song. And we live in an entire culture that has embraced that truth, that is bought in to that lie. I mean, we maintain this fantasy that if we can just find our one true soulmate, then everything that's wrong with us will be healed. But when our expectations and hopes reach that kind of magnitude, as Becker says, the love object is God, is God. Folks, no lover, no human being is qualified for that role. You just can't do it. No one can ever live up to that. And the inevitable result is just bitter disillusionment. Now, for those of you who grew up in the church you probably remember the lovely flannel graph stories of Samson and his great strength, right? But there's another theme that runs throughout all of Samson's life. It is this dysfunctional pull of romantic love. In fact, over in Judges 14.2, when Samson came of age, one of the first things he says to his parents is this, I have seen a Philistine woman. I've seen a woman, a woman who did not share his faith in the God of Israel a woman from a different culture that was very barbaric. And his response to his parents was, now get her for me as my wife. So this impulsive, demanding, driven love overtook his senses. And lest you think the dysfunction was only on his side of things after he marries this woman, a few verses later, it says this, then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. And then it goes on to say that she cries for seven days straight, people. All right, some of you are feeling a bit better about the relationship you're in right now, right? You should be. So there was like hysteria and manipulation and bargaining that she brings to the table to counter his impulsive, driven, demanding, romantic love. I mean, it's crazy, crazy relationship here. You know, later on in Judges, the Bible says that Samson falls in love with another woman, Delilah. And folks, there's actually a prostitute in between the first wife and Delilah. We don't have time to get into that, okay? It's crazy, all right? The Bible this, the Bible's crazy, people. You know why? I'll tell you why, because you're crazy. That's why. I'm crazy. We're all crazy, all right? Anyway, Delilah's response, okay, when she discovers that Samson loves her, is to try to lure him in. So now she's going to add deceit to this whole cauldron of dysfunction, the Bible says, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. Anybody been in a romantic relationship where nagging was a part of it? Yeah, don't raise your hands, okay? Don't, don't do that. Just think about it. And now for Samson, I think it's pretty obvious. A major part of his dysfunction was sexual, no doubt about it. Back back in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis said that he heard from many of his peers in the British Academy that sex was nothing more than an appetite, kind of like we have for food. And they said, if we could just recognize this and get to the point where we simply let people have sex whenever, wherever they want, then people would cease to be driven mad by this desire for love and sex. Well, Lewis doubted that. And so he proposed a little thought experiment. It went like this. He said, suppose you come to a country where you can fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Well, one critic said that if he found a country where such striptease acts with food were popular... He would conclude that the people of that country must be starving. However, Lewis goes on to argue that we are not starving for sex. In fact, sex is more readily available today than ever before. Ever before. Pornography, which is the equivalent of striptease sex, is now a trillion dollar industry. Therefore, sex, romantic love, those are not just appetites like we have for food, they are far more meaningful to us than that. So, whether it's romance or sexual fulfillment, those things can become an idol in their own right. One woman coming out of an abusive relationship said this. She said, men were my alcohol. Men were my alcohol. Only if I was on a man's arm could I face life and feel good about myself. Hmm. You know, another example would be the older man who abandons his wife for a much younger woman in a desperate effort to hide the reality that he's aging. Or maybe this popular one, the the young guy who's obsessed with a woman, finds a woman desirable only until she sleeps with him, and then after that, he's no longer interested. You see, for him, women are simply a necessary commodity to make him feel desirable and powerful. So our fears, our inner barrenness makes love a narcotic, a way to medicate ourselves. And addicts always make foolish, destructive choices every time. Okay, let's move on. There's another form of love gone wrong. This one's a little harder to talk about. I'm guessing it might surprise some of you. The Bible actually says that it's possible to make the love of our children an idol. This is actually pretty common. Sometimes it's called family olatry. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes about a woman in his church who fell into this trap. For years, she was pretty convinced that she could not have children. But then eventually, God blessed her and her husband with three lovely kids. However, she had this overwhelming drive just to make everything perfect for them, to give them the perfect life. And it got to be so bad, she could hardly even enjoy her kids. Very quickly, her whole life got wrapped up in her children and her overprotectiveness, her anxiety. Eventually, the need to control every detail of their life began to choke her. And Keller writes this, it's not so much that she loved her children too much, but rather that she loved God too little in relationship to them. That's good. It says her desire for her children to be successful and happy was actually selfish and really about her need to feel worthwhile and valuable. Now, this is kind of a hard one to talk about because for those with kids, they think, man, I'd give up my life for them to be happy and successful But it's easy to invest in our children in an attempt to gain a certain level of joy and satisfaction from them that ultimately should only be found in God. The ironic thing is no child can bear the burden of that kind of love. So how do we hold our kids loosely, right, rather than a firm grasp there? Well, there's a story over in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's the story of Eli the priest. And in this story, Eli has in his care a young boy, Samuel, who he's training up to be a priest in the temple. But Eli also had two sons of his own who served with him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says that Eli's sons were wicked men, that they had no regard for the Lord. In fact, when people would bring in sacrifices to the temple, they would actually eat the best parts of the meat and then give the leftovers back to be sacrificed. And in addition to that, they would sleep with the women who were serving in the temple. But it wasn't until Eli was a very old man and had heard many, many times about what his sons were doing that he mustered up the courage to go and confront them. And he says this, says, he said to them, why do you do such things? The Bible says his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. And in the end, God says to Eli, this is key, why do you honor your sons More than me. Why do you honor your sons more than me? You made an idol out of your sons. See, we have to be willing to put God first, to trust God with our kids, even if it means that they're gonna fail. And we have to find our hope, we have to find our peace, not in them, but in God's love. Easier said than done. All right, so there's romance and sex, there's children, even grandchildren. There's a third form of love that can become an idol, and that is approval. People, if your idol is power, you'll be willing to give up approval to get it. But if your idol is approval, then you'll be willing to give up your power to get that. And the approval addiction is a love idol that places other people's opinions of you on a pedestal, You know where you find yourself striving to do almost anything to guarantee the good opinions of other people. And that just exhausts you people, trust me. You're trying to control your image, trying to control everybody around you and what they think of you. And what you should be doing is looking into the face of the only one that you really need to please, the only one that you need the approval of. So over in the book of Galatians, there's a great example of this. Paul, he writes about his good friend and fellow apostle Peter. And he starts in Galatians 2.11 by saying that Peter was clearly in the wrong. That kind of gets your attention, doesn't it? And Paul goes on to say, here's what's going on. Before certain men came from James, those would be Jewish men, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, that'd be the Jewish men from James, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, that is the Jewish people. So Paul says Peter was posturing himself with one group against the other group. See, Peter wanted to gain the approval of this group, but as soon as certain people came from the other group, he started to distance himself from that first group, all in an attempt to gain the approval of that other group. And I don't know about you, but I have fallen into this trap more times than I would like to admit. You know, being too concerned, caring too much, projecting, wondering what other people are thinking about me to such an extent that all my energy is going there instead of going, God, am I doing things that you would approve of? And I'm telling you, it might take a lifetime, but it takes a lot of introspection, takes a lot of courage to figure out how to love the approval of God more than the approval of other people. All right, the last category is a little surprising as well. It's when we make perfection an idol of love. See, perfection can sometimes turn into love avoidance. And those who avoid the entanglements of love out of the search for a perfect person, I think they're just as guilty of making love an idol as those who pursue multiple unhealthy relationships. Now, I've counseled individuals who have come out of really bad, painful relational breakups. And as a result of that, they end up overly skittish about ever committing. And they'll say things like, you know what? (laughs) after my bad relationship, after that last experience, I'm going to make absolutely certain that if I ever get into another relationship, if I ever get married, there are going to be no surprises. No surprises. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're laughing good. You want no surprises, go get a cat or something, okay? <laughs> Don't get married. Don't even think about it. Marriage can be a wonderful relationship, but it's also a crucible for facing what's wrong with yourself and having to grow, having to stretch. You know, our search for that perfect person, that's understandable. I mean, we're made in the image of a perfect God. We long for perfection, but it's also completely misguided. And I think it reveals a lack of understanding of our own brokenness. And one of the first criticisms Jesus received from the religious leaders, you may remember this, is that He was a friend of sinners, You know, the Bible says one day Jesus got up and went over to the home of Matthew, a tax collector, to have dinner. Now, in those days, tax collectors, you probably know, were a few levels beneath the scum of the earth in the minds of Jewish people. And the Bible says that when Jesus got to Matthew's house, not only were there other tax collectors there, there were also other sinners who were there who came to eat with Jesus and His disciples. And I want you to listen carefully to this. It says, when the Pharisees, those religious leaders, saw this, they asked His disciples, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want you to notice here, they didn't ask Jesus Himself. That's interesting. And then I love the next verse. On hearing this, Jesus said, see, Jesus is eavesdropping just enough to hear the conversation that was meant for Him but wasn't directed toward Him. And so he turns to these religious leaders who ask the question, and here's what he says It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says to these teachers of the Torah who had memorized most of the Old Testament scriptures, Go and learn what this means. Go figure that out, will you? It's like spitting in their face, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter that deals with the supremacy of love. doesn't say love is picky, love is critical, love is superior, love is judgmental of others. You know, humanly speaking, there isn't a perfect love, not in romance, not in our children, not in approval from other people, not in perfection. But walking down all those roads that eventually become cul-de-sacs, I think helps us to realize the futility of, of looking for an ultimate love in any of those places. Because our search for the perfect love can only end in the presence of God Himself. And I really believe that our disenchantment with idols over time actually gives us an opportunity to kind of move away from them, figure out, you know what, I don't have to be pulled in by those idols. I need to find my way back to God, to the only one who can give me what I need. You know, we put love on a pedestal. God put love on a cross. I think if we sit in the presence of God long enough, we may begin to experience a little discomfort as we start to realize that we've made an idol out of something to the point that you might want to leave that quietness, because if you stay there long enough, you're going to be convicted. You will hear the voice of God. Hebrew language has an unusual word the word chesed, chesed. It speaks of a love that cannot fail, an unfailing love. It's used to describe God's love. It's the kind of love we're looking for, the kind of love we're longing for, but can only be found in the face of our loving God. And I think with God in that rightful place, it frees us up to love other people in their rightful place and not put them up on a pedestal, not put them in the place of an idol. I think nobody's ever said this better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. He goes on to say, I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And he concludes with this classic line, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, I want us to enter a time of prayer right now and just sit quietly with these four areas and maybe let God speak to your heart about something that maybe has become an idol in your life. Is it romance, sex, children, grandchildren, approval, perfection? Let's pray together. The Lord, I want us to have a moment just with you, with the Holy Spirit to speak to us Because for each of us, something is going to compete with you. Something is going to try to take the place where only you should be. And God, we want to be open because these things can happen and we don't even realize it. Lord, I know for for so many men, especially the sex and pornography, that's a huge issue for them. Maybe it's romance that I've got to have a relationship, I've got to have a significant other, and that becomes an idol. Maybe it's our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Maybe our whole lives we've been striving for the approval of others more than the approval of the only one that counts. If, if Peter can fall into that trap, surely we can. Maybe it's perfection and we've just shut out love and nobody's good enough. There's so many ways that we can stumble. Heavenly Father, remind us that the magnificent, compelling, unfailing love we're looking for is ultimately only found in you. And even throughout this series, as we continue to look at other things that can become idols in our lives, would you give us open minds, open hearts, open hands to offer them up to you. God, I pray that you would help us in this process through your Holy Spirit because you want to free us. You want to free us from the bondage of idolatry. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have the power to do all things and your desire for us to worship you and you alone and put you alone on that pedestal is for our own good. So we love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a wonderful week in the Lord.